it. Well, if you have turned away in your Bible, please turn to Daniel 8 again. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, we desire to see you. We desire to see your greatness, your beauty, and your glory today. And so please, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you reveal yourself to us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Great, so we're in Daniel 8 today. And as we were reading, you'll have probably seen all sorts of animals flying here, there, and everywhere. I want to quickly skim over those uh, and then get on to the good stuff. So, quick history of what we saw in the vision, what Daniel saw in the vision. We had the ram, then came the goat. The goat had a prominent horn, which then was shattered and four horns came up in its place. And out of one of those horns, another horn came. Okay, so we have goat, ram, goat, big horn, four horns, little horn. Okay, what, what, that, that, what, what that is, it's a, it's a quick history of something that took hundreds of years to fill out, which was the, the ram is the empire of the Medes and the Persians. The goat is then the empire of Greece that came afterwards. And then uh, the, the big horn in between the eyes of the goat, that is referring to Alexander the Great, who was the first king of the uh, Greek Empire. But then when Alexander died, the, the Greek Empire was split basically between four of his generals, that's the four horns, uh, and then I- and each of those four generals became king of their little kingdom. And then from one of those kingdoms, a later king, uh, who was the small horn, came. He was an evil king who persecuted the Jews. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. We have a picture, I think, coming very shortly. Here we go. So this is a statue of the face of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, I, I joke that y- you know that he's a bad guy because you'll see that his nose has fallen off. And like Voldemort, bad guys don't have noses. So you see noseless Antiochus Epiphanes, noseless Voldemort. They're both bad guys. So this is Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and the, the bulk of the chapter is about him. He's this little horn who comes up later. Now, I skip over all this kind of history quickly for two reasons. Firstly, in a sermon, I'm supposed to proclaim Jesus and not give a history lesson. If we, if we wanted a history lesson, I would have got my sister to come in and do this. Um, uh, and then secondly, because maybe I'm wrong, but I get the impression that when the angel Gabriel is explaining the vision, he, he's in, in uh, sort of verse 19 onwards, he's very sparing and quick over Persia and Greece. And it seems to me that he's kind of rushing to get to the small horn Antiochus Epiphanes. And so I want, like Gabriel, to, uh, to spend more time considering this figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, and hopefully how we see the greatness of God um, in, in light of all this. And so um, look, for, look first for now, as we begin uh, properly then, at verse 11, describing what this little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, does. It says that it, or, or, or he, uh, set him itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Right. This stuff is, is appalling. It should appall us, and it should uh, even offend us. Um, but I think right now it, it doesn't quite. And I think partly that's because we, we've come here on a Sunday morning, and we'll have had long weeks, and we're weary from the week. We're weary from our own sin. And we're weary about the troubles and the things that we care about. And the result is that we can easily forget God's greatness. 
So I, what I want to do uh, in this sermon is to consider the greatness of God. So we've got three sections. Number one, God's greatness. We're going to sp- spend some time thinking of God's greatness. The second section will be how God's greatness highlights the hubris. Highlights the hubris. Hubris is, is when you think you're as great as God. You're arrogant. You're proud. That's what hubris is. The second section, God's greatness highlights the hubris. And the third section is that God's greatness halts. Oops. Right. That's, that's, that's the kind of roadmap for where we're headed today. Let's go to then our first section, God's greatness. And I want to just take the things in this passage that help us uh, increase our love and our devotion, and our uh, joy in God by considering God's greatness. So to begin with then, let's look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Um, out, out of one of them came another horn, this small horn, which started small but grew in power towards the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. Beautiful land. What an odd little phrase just chucked in the chapter there, the beautiful land. Now, in these sort of very fancy apocalyptic visions that you get in Daniel and other parts of the Bible, we see things both more obscurely and more clearly. If you ask the historian about this part of time that it's talking about, they might tell you about the military history, the socioeconomic stuff going on, you know, the, 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 the relational dynamics between kings and successes and all that kind of stuff. But we don't get that here. That's obscured because it's, in a grand scheme of things, it's not the main thing. One, the main thing here in this verse is that this little land of Palestine, this obscure buffer state between uh, which has been ravaged by kingdoms fighting between the north in Syria and the south in Egypt. This little buffer state, if you like, is called the land. Nothing about it is beautiful, except from the fact that God is the one who beautifies his people. He is the one who makes them precious. And so for starters, we see the greatness of God first in his unending beauty from which he beautifies, he makes beautiful his land in, in the old covenant sense and, and us, his today. He is beautiful and the beautifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That verse in Romans. Then we come to, let's look at verse uh, 13. Do you notice here, I, I, I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to him, probably an angel, how long? How long? An angel asks, how long? Now, normally in the Bible, humans ask God how long. Think of Psalm, Psalm uh, 6. How long, O Lord, how long? Or, or in Revelation, the martyrs are asking God, how long? But Daniel, who's the only human here, he's so overcome and overwhelmed by all the vision that he's seeing so that an angel helps him to ask what he wants to know. And we see a wonderful thing here, that angels are invested in our salvation. Reminds me of, of, of Luke 22, when, when Jesus is sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and an angel comes and ministers to him. We see that angels, they're not being the ones saved, but they are so invested in our salvation. And if angels, if angels are so invested in our salvation, how much more invested is the one who orchestrated the whole thing, the, whole, the one who decided and planned to save us all. And so if the angels 
are so great, we see God's greatness even more in his commitment to his. Then look at verse 15 and 16. It says, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai, that's the canal, calling Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So we see someone who, who, who looked like a man command the angel Gabriel. Yes, this is the angel Gabriel from Christmas stories, same angel. Uh, now, bearing in mind that verse 11 speaks of the commander of the army of the Lord. Many would take this man who's speaking, looks like a man, speaking to Gabriel as the eternal Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see God the Son's greatness firstly here and that the angels serve and obey him. The angels serve and obey him. Imagine if you were walking in the street and a random person came up to you and told you to do something. Explain this thing for someone else. Your response might well be, Excuse me? Why do I have to do what you say? Now, imagine if that person was Tom Hanks or your favorite actor, you know, whoever you might absolutely love and adore. You'd, you'd do whatever he asked in no time. You, it, it'd be done already. And so, and so we see there, God must be so great for the angels to willingly, gladly um, do what he says. But, but think even more. Gabriel is a mighty, ferocious angel, right? Angels in the Bibles don't look like uh, babies with wings and nappies. Okay, that, that's not what an angel looks like. You know, the, the, the nappy adverts might try and believe, make you believe that, but that's not what they look like. They are terrifying creatures. And these mighty creatures, you might think, oh, they can do what they want. No, these mighty, ferocious creatures, they gladly, God's will, gladly do it. How great must God the Son be that he has thousands of angel hosts delightfully doing his bidding every day. We also see the greatness of the Son in his role of revealing mysteries. Both last week and this week we've read of visions. But the eternal Son and his great compassion on our human frailty comes down to our thick and dim level and provides interpretations for us. Like, isn't it great that both Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 don't stop at verse 14? In both chapters, verse 15, that's when the interpretation comes. And God in his kindness reveals these mysteries to us. Think how lost and clueless we would be without them. It's like having a, an ordnance survey map, but not having the key to the sides telling you what all the things mean. You're just seeing squiggles and nice little pictures, but you haven't got a clue what it's on about. That's what God has given for us. And then we see the greatness of the son's humility and his pity in the fact that he appears as a human here. You see, one he stood before me, one who, who looked like a man. He appears human so that we can bear it. You see, at this point in time, has Jesus become incarnate yet? Has, has the first Christmas happened yet in, in Daniel 8? No. Not, not yet has Jesus taken upon himself a human nature. But in a mysterious and a hard-to-understand way, Christ appears as a human to Daniel so that Daniel's socks wouldn't completely be blown off at the sight of it. Just think of all the people in the Bible who actually do see the risen Christ in all his glory. Think of Isaiah in chapter 6. Think of Paul on the Damascus Road, John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation. All of them 
like they just lose bodily capacity to do anything because it just it blows them away. But Christ, see, seeing how Daniel is already pretty wiped out by these visions, in his utter compassion and his utter uh, considerateness, appears to Daniel as a human because he's aware of Daniel's frail and weak nature. Just think what would have happened if the sun had stood before Daniel in all of his world-creating glory. What a kind God we have. And so this, this is the greatness of God as revealed in this eighth chapter of Daniel. There's a few things just to try and get us to appreciate what, who, who is the God that we are talking about. Yeah? He, he's beautiful and he beautifies. He's the orchestrator of our salvation. Powerful angels delight to do what he says. He reveals mysteries to us. And he kindly stoops down to our pitiful level. This, this is the greatness of God revealed. And so we come on to our second section then. The greatness of God highlights the hubris. Hubris, remember, being this word for pride, pretending to be like God. The greatness of God highlights the hubris. So I hope now that we've seen the greatness of God revealed, we now turn to look at the greatness of God revealed. Now, if you're confused because I just said the same thing, it's because the sermon title today, The Greatness of God Revealed, has two meanings. I mentioned earlier this king, this king called Antiochus Epiphanes, right? Uh, Antiochus is his name. Epiphanes is his title. And it means manifest or revealed, implying God revealed. So when Antiochus chose the name, or sorry, chose the title Epiphanes, he was calling himself as Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus, God revealed. He was saying that he, Antiochus, was God revealed. How proud, how arrogant, the hubris. And so let's look at the greatness, or the the attempted greatness, at the so-called God revealed, this Antiochus fella. Well, let's look at verse 11. Let's go back to verse 11. Let's see if we can appreciate the hubris now. The first thing we see uh, there, which I want to pick up on, is it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. In Exodus 29, it was commanded that there should be a sacrifice every morning and evening. God was to be worshipped daily. And the people were to see that sacrifice is an integral part of their lives. And Antiochus took that sacrifice from the Lord. From the Lord. How dare he? How dare he? He takes God's worship. How dare he? Now, Jerome, who, who is um, a guy who lived kind of fourth century, similar to a time to uh, St. Augustine, if you've heard of him, they would write letters to one another. He, commenting on this passage, says, uh, most of our commentators refer uh, refer this passage to the Antichrist and hold that what occurred under Antiochus uh, was only by way of a type that shall be fulfilled under Antichrist. As As in what he's saying is that what Antiochus did in between the kind of Old and New Testament period is what Satan and every, under, and every other anti-Christian power continues to do today. It's, it's the same tactics. 
So when we, when we see Antiochus Epiphanes taking the sacrifice from the Lord, we see that today. Now, whilst the daily sacrifice has been fulfilled in Christ's once and for all sacrifice, Satan will still try to diminish its constant relevance for us. Satan will try to tempt us to despair over past sin without hope that Christ's sacrifice wins us that full forgiveness. To think, no, you're too bad. You think God's going to forgive you? Nah, like when Jesus died for people's sins, he didn't really have you in mind. It's it's sort of the all right people, you're too sinful. Yeah. How many of us know that kind of feeling, those thoughts that pass through our heads? Or maybe, or maybe Satan will go the other route. He'll try to make us think that we're good enough to not need saving. That no sacrifice is needed to pay for our sins because you know, we're not too bad. We're okay, right? Both of these are lies. Daily, daily, day by day, we need to know that we are justified, that we can stand before God only on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, his atoning death for our sins. It is by his merits that we can stand before God, not because we're good enough or not because we're too bad and we can't. It is through Christ and through Christ alone that we can come before God. And so our lives need to be uh, defined by a daily understanding that the sacrifice of Christ has sorted me out. And that's where my worship comes from. The anti-Christian devil, like the, the, the anti-Christ Antiochus, he's throwing down Christ's sacrifice. He's saying it's not for you. How dare he? How dare he do that? What else did Antiochus do? Verse 11, it also says that the Lord's sanctuary was thrown down. That's the temple. That's the temple in those days. But even today, Satan attempts to throw down the new temple of God. Christ's body is the church, us. Let me give you an example. There's a a pastor called Musa in Eritrea. Uh, And in Eritrea, which is just on the Horn of Africa, uh, Christians from non-traditional church backgrounds aren't allowed to worship. So Musa was sent to prison for working as a pastor at an unregistered church. Right? So we see suffering from Musa there. We've even talked about in our press suffering from Chinese Christians. Even today, there are anti-Christian forces attempting to, to get us to stop worshipping, to throw down God's church. How dare they? How dare they? This is God's church. They're messing with the wrong person. In verse 12, we see the truth thrown to the ground. Truth thrown to the ground. And is this not true in every age, right? Right from when the psalmist said, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. All the way to today, when there are certain lives that we can believe. Of all sorts of things. We might be tricked into believing that, you know, Christians can only vote for this one particular political party. And then if you don't, you're, you're, you're not a Christian. Or maybe in, in other places around sexuality, we might be told a lie that standing for truth and loving other people are opposite from one another. You can't do them. Indeed, today, the father of lies very, very busy. 
And in all of this, look at verse uh, 25. He will cause deceit to prosper. There it is again. Um, uh, sorry, uh, yes, and he will consider himself superior. Do you see that there? He will consider himself superior. Antiochus thought that he was greater than God. He thought he was greater than God. That phrase in, in, is worded in the ESV, in his own mind, he shall become great, which, which links with this sermon title, right? The greatness of God revealed. Whose greatness are we talking about, right? Who is really great? So-called God revealed Antiochus, Epiphanes? Or our God, the true God? Greatness, God revealed. And so what, all, all these things that Antiochus is, is doing, it's, it's like this scenario. Imagine this scenario. In, in a school, there are two brothers, okay? One's in S2, and one is in S6. Is S6 the highest year? Yes. Okay, one in S2, and one's in S6. And let's say this, the brother in S6, he's captain of the Shinty team, okay? Captain of the Shinty team. Now, you know, you know that you cannot bully the S2 brother. Because S6 brother, he's going to find out and make sure that you're sorry you dared. Okay? And in this scenario, if you're like, you know, God, God is the S6 brother, and we his people are the S2 brother, right? And every person in their right mind doesn't bully S2 brother. Because we're scared of the Shinty playing S6. But Antiochus, right? Antiochus, he is so cocky and so arrogant that he bullies the S2 brother. He bullies us. What's your response? You're like, sorry, you bullied whose little brother? Like, oh, you're so done for. Oh, you're a dead man. Oh, and that's the point. That's the point. Antiochus is so done for. He is a dead man. And so we come to our third section. God's greatness halts the hubris. Stops the hubris. God's greatness halts the hubris. Look at verse 14. When after the angel has asked how long, verse 14, he said to me, it'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be, be consecrated. It will end. It will end. God has pinned it down to the day. And it might, not, it might be a long time coming. For, for the Jews here, it was about six or so years. But it will be done. One commentator on his passage said, it's long, but limited. Long, but limited. But how will he halt the hubris? How will it stop when the kingdoms of this world seem so powerful? Look at verse 24. He will become strong, but not by his own power. But not by his own power. Our God is so in control and so sovereign that he is the one who holds up these evil kings for their limited moment of power. And the instant he withdraws his hand, bah! They fall. They fall and they fail. God is in control of world. I mean, like, is, if, if you learn nothing from Daniel, surely that's what you learn, that he is sovereign over the kings of this world. And he will withdraw his power because they are only strong by his power. And then look at the second half of verse 25. He will destroy many 
He will take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human. Now, you might have noticed in verse 4, it was talking about Persia. And in verse 4, it said, none could rescue from its power. None could rescue from its power. You might have seen in verse 7, talking about Greece, it said, none could rescue the ram from its power. None could rescue. So what is our hope in the face of all these kingdoms when none can rescue from their power? It's to think, ah, wait. No human can rescue from their power. That Antiochus was destroyed, but not by humans. The Antichrist will be destroyed, but not by human power. Satan himself will be destroyed, but not by human power. Power. And here we see our last view of the greatness of God. He has power over all kingdoms. He is the powerful one. Evil will end and he will halt the hubris. So when you're faced with all these different things, power of your own sin, the power of uh, your people around you, or, or you see Christians suffering across the world. God is great. And actually, it's God's greatness that highlights the hubris, that makes it so bad, that makes you go, how dare they? And God's greatness halts the hubris. And so, brothers and sisters today, use the eyes of faith and behold the greatness of Let's pray. Oh Lord, when we see human hubris and human pride and we begin to despair, sometimes, Lord, it is so sad and we don't know what to do. Let us behold your greatness. Your greatness will, see the horror, will help us see the horror of human sin, but it will also show us that it will end. When we are tempted to think that none can rescue from the power of our sin, or that none can rescue from those who persecute us, or none can rescue us from those who persecute our brothers and sisters throughout the world, remind us that these also will be destroyed but not by human power. To you, therefore, O Father, with the Son in whose name we pray and the Holy Spirit, in you is our trust and to you be the glory forever. Amen.